Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show, where we talk about the business of sports. I'm Joe Favorito, along with my co-host once again, Tom Richardson. Hey, Tom. Joe, good to be with you two weeks in a row. Haven't had that happen in a few months. Yep. So uh, let's get to it. So a little bit of trivia as we get started. Between the, two, between the two of us and our guest, we have a combined total of 3,948 points in the NBA. All three of us have done that together because our guest today is a returning faculty member now, was here a few years ago, now back, uh, former head of the NBA or current head of the NBA Retired Players Association, Len? Former. Former litigator, um, Harvard graduate, Powell Memorial graduate, uh, University of Maryland graduate, NBA veteran, Indiana Pacers, Kansas City Kings, Milwaukee Bucks, and the Nets and the Knicks. Our guest is Len Elmore. Len, thanks for joining us. Sure, it's my pleasure. Yes, Len, good to have you guys. Yep. So you're back on campus. Welcome back. Uh, now teaching full-time. Um, but for those who don't know, why don't you kind of give us a little bit of the, the, the cut-down version of how you got to this point in your career starting, you know, playing at Power Memorial. Well, you mentioned uh, some of the highlights, I guess you could call them. Uh, you know, born and raised in New York City, I did get an opportunity to go to Power Memorial Academy, which... Uh, is the home of um, the, one of the greatest players in, in the game of basketball, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, back in those days known as Luau Cinder. Uh, and Chris Mullen for three years Chris before he Mullen, transferred. Another yep. pretty good player. Yep. Uh, Jason Williams, I mean, we mm-hmm. put on the list. Mm-hmm. Even Dick Bavetta, the yeah. famous official. Yep. Uh, so, you know, we've had a bit of a basketball tradition at, at power. But I'm um, fortunate enough to get a uh, scholarship offer at the University of Maryland, um, which I chose to, you know, kind of... Uh, Sate a uh, couple of forces in my family, although my mother wanted me to go to Princeton, but there's a, that's a whole other story. <laughs> um, and after the University of Maryland, I was drafted in the first round of both the American Basketball Association and the NBA. I opted for the ABA simply because I got more years, uh, a little more security from a team that was uh, financially solvent, and ultimately I thought that they would merge with the NBA, which they, they did, and that was the Indiana Pacers. Um, uh, from there, uh, kind of spent five years in Indiana, became somewhat of a journeyman after a couple of injuries, but uh, still had an opportunity to play some meaningful games, particularly with the New Jersey Nets, uh, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, but always had the dream of becoming a lawyer, growing up in the tumultuous 60s uh, civil rights movement, the war in Vietnam. I thought the law could change things, and, and rather than be a a bystander and watch the parade go by, wanted to be a part of it. So um, kept my philosophical habits, uh, took the LSATs, was accepted at Harvard Law, and from there became a prosecutor here in, in Brooklyn, New York, uh, for almost four years. I uh, went into private practice um, while I was uh, discovered as a broadcaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which we left out, my bad. Yep. That's all right. Yep. In 85, uh, I was a broadcaster and you know, kind of been doing college basketball. I did some NBA, but mostly college basketball from then up until even now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my legal experience took me in and out of a private practice as well as running a couple of companies, an education technology company, uh, youth sports joint venture between the NBA and the NCAA, among others, and um, had an opportunity to become an adjunct uh, uh, professor here at, at Columbia about eight years ago teaching uh, sports media. And with all of that knowledge, understanding, and experience, I'm at an age now where, you know, when you amass that kind of institutional knowledge, you figure, okay, what am I going to do with it? And 
So I, I thought I'd try and give it away. Mm, there you <laughs> go. And, and here we are. Um, you know, the course that, that I'm teaching that, that's foremost is athlete activism and social justice, which I thought was pretty pretty timely uh, subject matter. And um, you know, with the help of some terrific instructional design people and, and administration, able to put it together. And uh, we're in our second week, and we're off and running. So this is your the first time that particular course is being taught. Um, it's my understanding. Yes. yes. Okay. So uh, why don't you talk about the process of actually starting a brand new course? Because that's kind of a, I, I've been through that here when I started, and it's an interesting process. But I, and I know it's actually been kind of um, taken very seriously uh, as new courses come into this program. So talk about that. Well, Tom, you're a pro, so I'm not sure. Oh no, no, no. You've been teaching longer than I. process was the same as yours. But we're trusting the, the process. Is yeah. what we're doing. In so. the end. Um, during my uh, essential interview, um, I brought up some points and issues that I thought uh, were necessary to add to a, a sports management course, and that was to, you know, kind of look at um, current events and, and in some way, shape, or form to be able to impart some skills that allow future managers, um, you know, future uh, leaders in the sports industry to be not only educated in the history and context, but also given opportunities to make decisions based on history and context. And so um, with the instructional design, I, I did a lot of research on the history of um, social activism and, you know, the passivity. Uh, the, if you take a look at mm -hmm. from a historical context, going all the way back to post-Civil War when sports became a leisure thing for Americans, uh, people don't realize that African Americans were prominent. Um, and, and I use African Americans because uh, they were prominent players, but also they were the ones who were victimized by social and political and even economic forces. And throughout that, even though you know people were freed at the Civil War level, um, going forward, there were a lot of obstacles that African American athletes uh, had to had to deal with, and in doing so, there were opportunities to become activists um, and protest their treatment, and other times, uh, the passivity was essentially activism. Um, you know, we can talk about the, the activist attitudes of uh, Jack Johnson uh, mm -hmm. during the turn of the century in the early 1900s, which flew in the face of social norms, and then you talk immediately after Jack Johnson, and there hadn't been a another African-American boxing champion for uh, almost 20-some-odd years came Joe Lewis, who, by his passivity, was an activist because he was a hero to most Americans because of what he symbolized in his fights against Max Schmeling, who represented fascism in Nazi Germany. And you go from there back to activism again with uh, Jackie Robinson and, and everybody in between. And after Jackie Robinson, there were different forms of activism, some based on race, some based on gender, some just based on unfairness, like a Kurt Flood who uh, mm -hmm. sacrificed his career by being an activist in favor of free agency. So we were going all the way up until hopefully we can get to what we're seeing now with Colin Kaepernick and... Um, you know, kneeling athletes who are not demonstrating against the national anthem or against the country, just against the treatment, particularly of, um, of people of color, men of color, uh, by the police uh, more than anything else. And then you can look at gun violence, you can look at poverty, so many different areas, gender equity, um, there's so many different areas, so many different methods that athletes have utilized their platform, their resources, um, and their celebrity to be able to stand out and, and, and make statements. 
So I'm, I'm curious. I want to talk more about what's going on right now because there's mm-hmm. th- this is an amazing topic. I'm, I'm really glad there's a course on this. Uh, everybody needs to talk about it. Um, but do you provide that historical context in the beginning of the class? Yes. and in yeah. fact, That seems really important to do for, for yeah, young people. In fact, we're in week two, and we're going to be discussing um, uh, the, the reversal of the Reconstruction Civil Rights Laws that occurred in 1883, ultimately wow. culminated in uh, Plessy versus Ferguson. Not only do we parallel what happened on streetcars where you know, people of color at one time were on equal footing with whites, and then suddenly they were forced to the back, and with Plessy separate but equal, um, you know, they were forced to, you know, have substandard, um, uh, substandard conditions and accommodations. And by the same token, in sports, you know, you had your one of the better pl- bad baseball players in um, Fleet Walker um, was banned due to the gentleman's agreement being begun by Cap Anson. Um, you had some of the leading jockeys, and most of them were African American um, winners of of multiple Kentucky Derbies, suddenly the Jockeys Guild, utilizing the law, would say that state action was the only discrimination that would be recognized, that private action would not be. And so Jockeys Guilds formed to, um, to kind of exclude uh, African-American um, uh, jockeys. And a lot of it had to do with the kind of jobs that were, being, that were available, the amount of money that these jockeys were paid, the influx of European immigrants who also wanted to make that same kind of money kind of forced that. And then finally in boxing, um, I'm sorry, in, in, in bicycling, we can get to boxing in a minute, but in bicycling, the world champion was an African-American, Major Taylor. And despite the obstacles of being hemmed in, oftentimes uh, things thrown into his spokes, he still maintained his championship for multiple years. But eventually a private group uh, that uh, took control of the administration of cycling and racing ultimately excluded him. And again, based upon the law, which at that time, Plessy versus Ferguson, separate but equal, gave them the power to be able to do that. So we traced that. And then what were the reactions? You know, one of the things I, I thought was key was that the three men that I mentioned, um, actually Isaac Murphy was a guy who was the, probably still the record holder in um, percentage of wins as a, whore, as a jockey. You know, those Murphy, Walker, and um, Taylor, all three of them ultimately died penniless, um, were victims of alcoholism, which was a you know, symptom of the stress that they had undergone. Um, Walker actually was tried for murder when he was put upon by a group of of men um, who, you know, I guess wanted to, you know, establish their dominance over people of color at the time. He was acquitted, but nevertheless still, you know, kind of lost the rest of his life um, due to that type of stress. And, you know, it just was a demonstration of what it did to to people at that time. Um, And then the reaction was a Jack Johnson, who just flaunted every social norm of the time and really enraged people and also was a symbol uh, universally, globally, he was a symbol as champion, a, a black champion, at a time when colonialism was at its peak around the world, and it frightened uh, the white colonialists because they were oftentimes in a minority in South Africa, in India, mm. in Asia, and so they tried to stop the distribution of Jack Johnson's fights because of that fear. So there are a lot of uh, interesting stories, a lot of interaction, but again, all based upon the need uh, for equality and the fight for equality and the reaction were very different from uh, the various athletes.
So your story, uh, going to high school on the Upper West Side, uh, in, in the, on the West Side of Manhattan, where Power Memorial was, going to the University of Maryland just outside of Washington in a pretty tumultuous time, going to the NBA starting in Indiana. Um, what were the influences on you to get to where you are today? Who are the people who influenced you? And when did you finally, you said you wanted to be a lawyer. When did you know that, that social justice was something that was going to be important to you? Well, I mean, the, the latter, um, Joe, really started with me when I was a, a kid, um, you know, watching television shows like Perry Mason and Defenders mm. and things like that. You always wanted to be a voice for the voiceless. You want to be the hero. Right. You know, you wanted to help those who, who were powerless. Or Atticus and, Finch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to kill a mockingbird. Um, but, but in the end, uh, you know, basketball in, in many ways got in the way. But what kept my, you know, burning desire to be a part of that were, were the readings. I mean, one person that I admired the most beyond, you know, my hardworking father and certainly my mother who, as an aside, my mother was um, the salutatorian in her high school in a little dirt poor town in Louisiana, mm. but she had an opportunity to get a scholarship to go to Southern University. She couldn't accept it because the family was so poor. She ultimately uh, migrated to New York City with my aunt to, to clean houses and to clean uh, office buildings. But, you know, the drive and the fire for education continued to burn in her. And in fact, when my father finally got a, a real job from truck driver to uh, working as a city employee on the sanitation department, um, we got bought a small home moving from Bed-Stuy, New York, that ghetto to a small working class black neighborhood in Queens, you know, finished the basement, he and his friends by hand, and they cut out a little space that they called the library in our house. It was just a formica ledge where you put chairs underneath and they went into debt to, to buy encyclopedias for us. Wow. So, you know, those are the, the types of influences that, uh, you know, I had uh, had experienced. And, and then when you talk about readings, whether it was Paul Robeson being a, a Renaissance man, you know, not only was he an all-American football player, he's an actor, a, a concert a singer and a lawyer. Um, you know, I thought, wow. You know, I'd like to do a lot of those things as well. Um, and then autobiography, autobiography of Malcolm X uh, and Soul on Ice uh, brought me into my manhood as an African-American male and to, you know, kind of move from there. So, you know, the combination of all those, those different interests, um, you know, kind of uh, was reflected in the things that I did, uh, you know, the people that I followed and um, the, uh, the philosophy that, that I developed. And playing in the NBA during... The 70s, um, when you look at from 74 to 84, there weren't any real um, causes that you could attach yourself to as they are today. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's the you know, unfortunate part of, of my experience that, you know, had I been a part of today or had I been playing in the 60s um, when they had, you know, Muhammad Ali and the, um, the summit when Jim Brown, um, you know, kind of... Uh, Called uh, call to to action, Bill Russell, Abdul Jabbar, um, himself, and many of the prominent African American athletes of the time. I might have been a part of that. Yeah, I've always been interested to observe the dynamic between individual players and the players' unions and the leagues and their positions. That's got to be an interesting angle on this whole thing, right? So we're seeing that play yeah. out in the NFL right now, where there where there seems to be a s significant friction between the point of view of many of the owners and uh, a good number of the players. Well, so really, talk about that from the NBA days and then kind of how that evolved vis-a-vis -vis some of these rulings. Well, from the NBA days, I thought the NBA was always a little more enlightened. 
Um, and because obviously back in those days, the sport was always 60, 70, and at one point, 80% people of color, African Americans primarily, before the influx of European players. And I think it was out of necessity that there had to be you know, more empathy with um, the plight of uh, broad, broad spectrum of people of color and, and certainly uh, of the athletes whose families were still, many of us still had families who were undergoing um, you know, whatever experience, negative experience it was to be of color. Uh, so the NBA had to do that. But they also the NBA went through a, a situation where there was a perception that the league was too black, too many drugs. Um, even though it kind of reflected general society at, at that time. And, and so, you know, they kind of hit a nadir as far as, um, you know, popularity. And it wasn't until um, a manifesto that dealt with the drug problem and, and set up rules that essentially address those problems, um, you know, look towards rehabilitation, but also, um, you know, kind of strict policy that uh, people started to, become more aware of the idea that, you know, this league is in concert with its players. Um, when you look at football, it, it's kind of another story because of the anonymity, because of the numbers. Um, I, I think that owners, you know, in many ways feel as though that, you know, as uh, the owner from the Houston Texans had already articulated that, you know, they ran the prison and the inmates are not going to run the prison mm -hmm. or the prisoners are not going to run the prison. And, and so that mentality and it was continued on through today, although you have a, a lot of uh, a lot of dissenters in that attitude in the NFL, just enough to, to make it interesting. And, you know, what I found is that because the NBA, in many ways, with their empathy, partnered with their players on many important issues, and we've seen it over the last several years, whether it's gun violence, whether it's police brutality against African-American males, allowed players to, you know, articulate their dissent, articulate their issues, and, and, and do it responsibly, um, you wouldn't know that it was the NBA that absolutely has a rule that you must stand for the mm -hmm. national anthem. No. Whereas the NFL never had that rule, but because of their attitudes towards the players, and they never partnered with them, it becomes you know a, a direct um, conflict in, in interests, and that's why we have the smacking of heads when it comes to this essential idea. Whereas in the NBA, um, that rule stands, and no one has an argument with it because there are so many other ways for players to voice their their uh, opinions and voice their dissent with uh, the way things are being uh, going on. So what about the, the people having just uh, witnessed what occurred at the U.S. Uh, Tennis Women's Championship with Serena? Um, I always think about the challenges for people in individual sports who don't have yeah. unions per se, and they don't mm -hmm. have really colleagues or teammates or friends that can at least encourage them and help them. Is that a, kind of a different dynamic versus a team environment? It is, and, and the thing about it is that in individual sports, your brand is essentially you, yeah. as opposed to maybe uh, being able to hide behind a team brand. And, you know, I, I, I really empathize with Serena and her reaction, although, again, you know, there is an argument to be made that you still have to maintain your dignity and in, in a sport like that, and particularly when you're you know, somebody who's absolutely on top you know, you have another way of demonstrating it. But I, I have no argument with, you know, the issue that was presented and the issue that, that she represented. I feel badly for the young lady who ultimately won because, you know, her victory was obscured by, 
you know, the, the dynamics uh, between Serena and, and the umpire. But what it does, uh, once again, is it, you know, highlights uh, the disparity in treatment uh, between men and women. Um, you know, I can think of John McEnroe saying much worse things. <laughs> yes, and, we remember and, that. And not having, you know, points uh, deducted from him. And, you know, tennis has always been one of those sports where, you know, rather than women being treated as, as equals, women had to be ladies, if you will, as opposed to, I mean, how long ago was it before, you know, they were allowed to wear, uh, you know, different types of uh, different types of clothing out there in the court as opposed to having to wear dresses and mm -hmm. things like that? It wasn't that long ago. So, you know, I, I think the, the gender equity issue was uh, really highlighted in that, in that regard by Serena just... You know, her reaction was another way of, of demonstrating against it. And people can agree with the way she acted or not, but nevertheless, they can't deny that the issue is there and it needs to be addressed. Um, you touch on leadership a little bit, Len. When growing up, uh, you were around a lot of very interesting coaches, Lefty Drizel, obviously, at Maryland. Um, who are some of the ones, when you look to a position of leadership, uh, who are some of the people that come up in, in your mind? Um, you know, I, I, when you look at coaches, uh, certainly Coach Drizell, my high school coach, I, I think might have been the best leader because of that one word, empathy. Mm -hmm. um, going to high school at Power Memorial, I mean, it's still, I was still a minority in that school, even though we were all pretty much treated the same. And during that time, I was very sensitive to what was going on and the riots in, in Detroit, for instance, um, you know, during the, and, and the riots during the King assassination. Um, you know, really had had an impact on me. And because I lived in Queens and Powell was in Manhattan, when we had games, I could not go home uh, mm. and then come back to report. So I stayed around school. And many times, you know, my coach, Jack Cunard, was also my math teacher in my junior year, and trigonometry was not my forte. <laughs> so, you know, we spent a lot of time working on that, but also we spent time talking about some of these issues. And you know, to have him impart, you know, some of the words that he did, uh, you know, to make you understand that there, everybody is not, um, you know, out to get you. Everybody is not out to deny you your rights. But by the same token, you understand there are both sides uh, that to an issue and that even though another side might absolutely be wrong, you know, to understand that is very important because that's how you become an advocate for your own position. And, and that's one of the things that, that Coach Cunier taught me, that, you know, understand the other guy's side. And even if you don't agree with it or you have, you don't agree with any part of it, you're able to counter those arguments. And, you know, that helped me a lot uh, going forward in my training as an attorney. Um, you know, Coach Rizal was another guy who uh, essentially imparted a work ethic. Um, he was a Dale Carnegie devotee, and everywhere in the locker room mm. were different sayings, the harder I work, the luckier I get, there's no I in team, you know, you can go for every trite, uh, you know, motivational saying there was, but in some way, shape, or form, they, through osmosis, they kind of get to yeah, you and get sure. your bone, and you start to understand the, the necessity to go out there and give what you have, to go out there and work to perfect who you mm -hmm. are and then to be the best person that you can be. You don't have to be perfect, and you may not be the best, but you, if you're the best person that you can be, that's all that can be asked of you. And um, so that I learned a lot from, from him. Um, the best coach I ever played for, and I played for some Hall of Fame guys, whether it's Bob Leonard, Don Nelson, um, Cotton Fitzsimmons, but uh, probably the best coach I ever played for from a standpoint of, 
you know, imparting fundamentals, skills, and understanding that you have to do the same thing every day and be put in a position to win, you have to be prepared for it was Larry Brown. And, uh, wow. You know, for two years I played for Larry Brown, and he resurrected my career. I mean, after my second year... Uh, That's with the Nets? Uh, yeah, yeah, with, with the New mm-hmm. Jersey Nets. And my second year with the Pacers, I averaged 15 and almost 11 uh, rebounds, but I hurt my knee my third year, and I was kind of considered damaged goods. And, you know, I kind of floated back and forth. I was a good player off the bench and great. But when I got to the Nets, you know, I was needed. And, in fact, there were some young players on that team, two of which were Maryland players, uh, Buck Williams and Albert King. Mm, And I was relied upon to kind of demonstrate maturity, demonstrate work habit to help them become better players. And that year, we started out 2-14 and with a bunch of retreads, but including stars like Albert, stars in the making like Buck and Albert. Uh, That was the all-Maryland front line, by the way. Mm. We started almost 80 games together, and every time they announced us, it was from Maryland, and from Maryland, and from Maryland. <laughs> it's almost like the announcer was tired. Um, but, you know, to be able to ultimately win 40-some-odd games and make the playoffs was a triumph unto itself, and I think that was Larry's leadership, and doing the same thing day after day to work fundamentally to get better and to have the elder statesmen become the leaders and impart the knowledge and the experience that we had to the young players and then help them, um, you know, reach uh, the maximum that they could give at that time. And, and growth was also uh, important. So, you know, those guys uh, had terrific impact. And then outside of it, obviously, like I said in my reading, there were people that, you know, I truly admired. And, um, you know, I've mentioned them before, and they played a role um, in, in my growth and in my ability to, you know, to be a mentor as I got older. It was ironic that you talk about Coach Brown, who I actually saw on campus this summer. Um, I was walking out of Hamilton Hall, and he was here coaching a high school team. He was taking them to Italy. So we walked through by Low Library, and he turned to me. He goes, you know, if my mother was still alive right now and I told her I was at Columbia, she would have a heart attack. So, uh, he said, they never let me on campus when I was up here, but now they let me run the gym and do whatever I want. And I guess he's going to coach in Italy this summer or this, this winter. He's an amazing man. In the 70s, and the bug continues to bite him Mm -hmm. to be able to coach and to be able to develop young men. I Mm -hmm. I think it's terrific. Yep. Um, Let's talk about the players today in the the few minutes we have left. Um, Athletes now have the ability to create their own voice. Um, Your feelings, good, bad, too much, not enough. Um, And do you talk, when you talk to young players today, whether it's students or whether it's athletes in the NBA or other sports, what advice do you give them as to how they should control or use the, the ability of social media and everything out that's out there now? Well, I think we probably have to blend the two uh, questions in, in my one answer, and that would be I, I think it's terrific that they're able, these athletes today are able to use their platform, their resources, and their celebrity to, to speak uh, to injustice that occurs out there, to speak to um, needs and to inspire. Um, and, and I think because of the, the many ways now that you can, um, you can disseminate that information, it makes it even more important. But I, I just want it to be authentic. And mm-hmm. oftentimes people do things to, um, to aggrandize themselves, to you know, increase their publicity, increase their their brand, if you will, and not oftentimes is it authentic, not oftentimes do they, um, you know, feel, do people outside of the field that it's real. 
Um, but I, I believe that the ones who are authentic are, are noticed for that and have a tremendous impact on their communities. And, you know, what the advice that I would give young people in general, but certainly um, young athletes in, in their quest to be uh, important voices in, in how we, you know, conduct ourselves going forward, is that you have to be authentic. You have to be real. Um, you know, your motivation should be for all the right things and not for uh, the, the personal things, if you will. I mean, speaking out is all about, um, you know, giving of yourself and making sacrifices and not looking for, you know, the personal rewards. I mean, one of the differences, I think, in athletes today as opposed to yesteryear was that you hear so many guys are focused on, you know, who they are, what they can get. I mean, I heard one rookie when asked, you know, what would you like to see this year? And my expectation was to hear them say, you know, I'd like to have our team make the playoffs and I'd like to be a part of helping them do this and do that. Instead, I want to be rookie of the year. I want to get into I, I, I. And you fall into a trap in that regard. And it's hard to resist that simply because, again, what we have done. I mean, you look at the NBA uh, for all the things that they've done right. Um, one of the bigger mistakes, I think, was to position the game as a game of individuals. When you look at it advertised on ESPN or some of the other networks, I mean, they talk about individual. It's not Houston versus Golden State. It's, you know, Harden versus Curry. Or, you know, you look at um, the focus on one guy and say, you know, that's the reason why the team is in trouble. Instead of recognizing that basketball is still a team game. But, you know, if you continue to you know, highlight the individuals, the game is played individually. And that's the problem I have with the NBA game today. It's, it's about jump shots. It's about, and analytics has a part of it too, which we could, that's a whole mm. show we could have. Um, but, you know, it's too, too often too many guys are going one-on-one seeking uh, the individual rewards as opposed to, you know, making it what it was intended to be, what Dr. Naismith intended to be was a team effort. Mm-hmm. I want to touch on uh, one other area before we let you go, uh, and that's your broadcasting career. Um, how did you get involved? And then ha- what's it like now on a day-to-day basis when you're out there, um, the amount of homework that's got to go into it, and, and kind of how do you develop a narrative uh, when, you're, when you're doing color commentary, especially on a game like a March Madness game? Well, I mean, the reason I got involved in television was as innocent as in my second year of law school, I got a call from a producer of uh, the ACC uh, network, Jefferson Pilot Raycom Sports, and you know, asked, was I interested? Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, I was one willing to try something different. It got me out of Cambridge on the weekends, and I said, sure. Um, ultimately, I became clearly the first African-American announcer for the ACC, and uh, it, was, it was a learning curve. There's no question about it. I tell the story that in one of my first games, you know, I have all of these facts that are in the open, myself and, and my play-by-play partner, and right before the game, you know, there's a, the period of time when you open it up to try to set the stage, and I had a legal pad full of stuff that I wanted to get out there, and the producer walks by with about 30 seconds left, takes the pad out of my hand and drops it on the ground and says, you only got 45 seconds. <laughs> and so that's when I learned how not only do you have to be conscientious and you have to be comprehensive, but you also have to be concise. And that's the key element there. You're constantly working to find a way to get that information out there, but nevertheless being concise enough where you can move on to the next play because basketball is a fast-paced game. Um, you know, as far as homework is concerned, it, it, it 
gets a little easier now because I have a process. But in prepping for for games, it, it's hard and, and you know um, it's kind of uh, uh, difficult and and. You know, kind of takes a long time to put things together early because different teams and with college basketball, you have new players uh, cycling in all the time. But as you go through a season and if you're covering a particular conference, you know, you've seen a team two, three, four times, it gets a little bit easier. But nevertheless, you stay on top of what's current, you stay on top of statistics, you understand adjustments that are made, and you're hopefully I'm able to articulate that. Um, and do it in, in kind of an entertaining way, but nevertheless still want to be factual. Um, you want to kind of look at replays, uh, which uh, is, is a big part for a color analyst, and, and to be able to tell people why things happen and how they happen as opposed to what you just saw. And I think, you know, when you look at former athletes who come on and, and assume that role, they think it's pretty easy when you're doing color analysis that, replays come, they're, they're pretty much telling you what you already saw. And as a viewer, you know, you, you look to educate the viewer. You want to entertain, but educating the viewer is most important. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I love doing March Madness, because it's different teams, different ideas, different takes on the game. And what you want to do is you want to be able to, you know, present a, a storyline. You want to present an angle that maybe no one else has thought about. And if that's your core thesis, thesis, you weave it throughout the game. And if you're right, you highlight it with numbers and, and other illustrations. And if you're wrong, you say you're wrong. And this is why you're wrong. And you highlight it once again with illustrations. So um, that's the challenge of the game. Um, you know, no one's always right. No one's always wrong. But if you're out there, you're having fun. You're honest with the viewer. And, you know, you try to be yourself, which, you know, I've done for now over 30 years and still still out there. I, I think you'll survive. If mm -hmm. you try to copy someone else and try to emulate someone else's style, you know, you're not long for the TV world. So with all the things that you touch on now, your law background, your teaching, your broadcasting, is there any one thing that you enjoy more than, than the other at this point? Um, you know, I can look back on my career and say that uh, I left probably I left the um, the district attorney's office too soon hmm. because you could really make a difference there. The problem was you know, I was getting paid thirty five thousand dollars a year, and coming from being a professional athlete, I, I didn't really appreciate that. And yes, I saved some money, but obviously we didn't get paid anywhere near what these guys get paid now. Um, I was recently married at that time, and we just started a family living in Manhattan. My wife had a pretty good job, but you know, at some point, you have to make a decision financially as to whether or not this is the way you want to go. But looking back, the ability to have impact on, you know, uh, how uh, people are charged, uh, to be able to do justice rather than merely convict. The last job that I had also was um, in a bureau that prosecuted police misconduct. And how relevant is that today? Mm. And the thing about it is I recognize some of the same issues 30 years ago that I dealt with are, are cropping up today mm -hmm. and you know I have more answers being more mature and being uh, more experienced you know really can make a difference in, in how justice is meted out and so you know I kind of miss that and every time I watch Law and Order it just reminds me that that's what I used to be mm -hmm. okay. yeah. uh, and then last how do you with so many of the areas you touch on how do you stay up to date on things are there sites you follow newsletters uh, what do you read um, I, I read just about everything, particularly 
connected to um, current events, um, both um, political. Um, I read a variety of, of blogs and a variety of um, outlets. Obviously, New York Times is um, we'll subscribe to that, but also. You know, I'm not ashamed to say I go on Twitter and I mm -hmm. filter out um, fake news versus what's important and, you know, kind of go from there. I, I read a lot of uh, papers that are put out by, you know, various um, groups, social justice groups particularly, kind of uh, assimilate the statistics and numbers and things of that nature. And, you know, I, I don't read as much um, as I used to for just the pure pleasure of reading, you know, fiction and like that I don't know I just don't seem to have time but mm. uh, nevertheless I also like to write and you know utilize the knowledge that, that I've gained and, and try to establish a viewpoint and, and, and kind of uh, put that viewpoint out there for you know critiquing and you know I'm not afraid for people to come back at me and tell me I'm wrong and you know I'd like to know how I'm wrong but I'm also not afraid to voice my, my opinion you know whether it's uh, popular or not doesn't matter so you know, all of those things, it keeps me busy. And, and then finally, what I'm doing now forces me to, you know, be a historian to a certain extent, mm -hmm. as well as bring history to life and, and by comparison to what we're seeing today and put it in context. So, you know, I'm really enjoying, you know, what I'm doing and um, I'm enjoying the way that I'm, uh, you know, assimilating, you know, life and, and all the things that have gone on and, you know, putting it all together. Great. And then lastly, Len, you mentioned Twitter. Uh, what's your handle so people can follow you? It's very difficult to remember. <laughs> Len Elmore. At Len Elmore. There you go. Cool. <laughs> no dots, no. Great. Well, Professor Len Elmore, uh, thank you for joining us on this edition of The Cusp Show. It was great having you on. Guys, it was a pleasure. Thank you. And once again, this was the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show. I'm Joe Favorito for my co-host, Tom Richardson. We'll see you down the road. <laughs>